Hello, good afternoon, everyone, and salam sejahtera, salam keluarga Malaysia. Uh, I'm Kalai Parisami, Director for the Institute for Clinical Research at the National Institutes of Health. And it's a pleasure to welcome you to our webinar uh, today on vaccination in pregnancy, <coughs> safety, and booster, and also on the uh, demystifying of booster doses. Uh, with me today, I have the pleasure to introduce later Dr. Muniswaran Ganesan. Uh, he is an expert, a maternal fetal and medicine consultant, and also a representative for the Malaysian Obstetric Medicine Society for uh, this afternoon's webinar. Much has happened uh, in the last uh, two years with the COVID-19 pandemic, globally as well as in Malaysia, as we are fully aware. And uh, currently, uh, there are already now boosters being offered uh, and there are many questions being asked. Some of these questions are, what are these all about for booster doses or a third dose? And is it necessary? And there are some criteria for some of you to be given a booster. And there are questions being asked as to whether in pregnancy too, uh, this is a consideration. So it is a pleasure to uh, have both uh, us with uh, a team from the Institute for Clinical Research to host this uh, webinar. And uh, I'd like to remind some of you there who are registered medical practitioners to ensure that to collect your CPD points, ensure you're registered, and, uh, and that allows us to offer you an online attendance certificate from the team here. And also for questions that are being asked, there's a Slido link uh, where you can type in your questions. And uh, given uh, the time limits, uh, we hope to answer as many questions as possible. At the same time, the webinar will be hosted at the ICR webinar series link. Uh, for those of you who wish to recap the discussions today, you can revert back to the link. Let me first start the session and uh, I'll share my slide just to introduce you where we are in Booster and uh, how we can bring this narrative for the next speaker, Dr. Muniswaran on the need for booster for pregnancy as well. So COVID-19 vaccine boosters, when and why? And this is a lovely shot of the Institute for Clinical Research uh, being based at the National Institute of Health. And uh, for those of you who wish to come and have a visit, please uh, take the opportunity. The six research institutes here and uh, for medical practitioners, pharmacists, dentists, it offers a good opportunity to look into research and to have your research facilitated. COVID-19 in Malaysia at current scenario, we have about 2.6 over million cases confirmed and our death rate is about 1.15 with a total death of over 30,000 over recorded. Now the majority of them who have had the fatal outcome are those with underlying health conditions. In fact, 70% over of those with uh, health condition uh, associated with case fatality. And if you look at the age distribution, majority of them come from the elderly, especially above 50 years and above. And certainly 60 years and above becomes a determining age group uh, for being very high risk for fatality, especially for those uh, in our country. Now, um, in terms of um, the vaccine uh, rollout, you, you would appreciate that from the very beginning of the rollout, uh, many portfolios were brought in, but certainly in Malaysia, we used uh, 
the Pfizer vaccine BNT162B2, the AstraZeneca vaccine 1222, and the CoronaVac, which is the Sinovac vaccine. And from the early onset, uh, we initiated uh, a study to monitor the vaccine effectiveness. And uh, this study is important because it gives us an idea about all these portfolios of vaccines that were brought into uh, the uh, pandemic era to contain the COVID-19 outcome. Now, what you see from this vaccine uh, is that over this duration from about April to uh, middle of September, uh, for those with confirmed COVID-19, uh, the cohort of almost 1.3 million were analyzed against the background of vaccinated and unvaccinated population. And also among those who are admitted hospital, all vaccines uh, were seen to be very effective in reducing the risk of ICU admission and death. And also uh, in terms of uh, effectiveness against uh, infection. For example, overall, all vaccines in the national rollout uh, reduce the risk of infection by about 87% and for symptomatic infection by about 85%. And all portfolios too showed very high levels of protection against uh, ICU admission and of course death. Uh, but uh, using that portfolio, uh, we now have a scenario where we can analyze where we are as a nation. Now, if you look at the the graph here, it shows for uh, those who have been given a single dose and now completion of doses, up to about uh, the current time, 21st of, uh, of I mean, to, to, to this month, you realize that uh, the cases that are uh, involved in terms of infection, as well as hospital admission, and uh, for those who are admitted to ICU and death, all of those uh, parameters have seen a reduction from about end of August, early September. And it has now come to a stage where we do not see a huge spike in COVID-19 cases. And that translates to a daily figure of about uh, between four to 5,000 now, and case fatality rate of uh, around this rate of 1.15%. So this is uh, only possible because of the rapid rollout of the three major vaccine portfolios, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, and Sinovac. And so the benefit of the rapid rollout and all this vaccine is uh, demonstrable through these national data that shows containment of the COVID-19 spread and the outcome for hospitalization and death. Also from the very beginning of this rollout, uh, the Institute here, we have undertaken zero surveillance studies, and this is to look into the, the usefulness of this vaccine. So for example, for healthcare workers uh, in the PIC program, we initiated the use of the Pfizer vaccine. And so from April of uh, last year, if you look into our healthcare workers, uh, one of the first studies we did was to look into whether there was already community spread among healthcare workers among those who worked in hospitals. And we found at that point in time, in the wave one of our pandemic, hardly any uh, healthcare worker who adheres to you know, PPE got infected. And through our sampling, we found there was zero, zero prevalence. This was between April and May last year. And we continued a similar model. Um, and so this work you can reference through our publication uh, that appeared in the Lancet Regional Health. Uh, to show that uh, high adherence to PPE, in fact, translates to zero, uh, zero prevalence. So when the vaccine was rolled out, we did a similar zero surveillance study. We looked at another larger sample of 551 healthcare workers 
And again, uh, healthcare workers were prioritized to receive the Pfizer vaccine. So they were offered this study to be included and to uh, sampling their blood at certain time points, uh, especially with the uh, timeline that uh, you look forward to, to see the zero conversion, the neutralizing antibody levels. And so we timed this about two weeks after the second dose before, and then three months, six months, 12 months, 18 months, and 24 months. And the blood sample was stored. And uh, when the sample were to be tested, they were taught and the serology samples were then determined. At the same time, healthcare workers in our work, we look at uh, symptoms and also through hospitals, they have uh, routine testing of healthcare workers. And so you could in fact look at symptomatic as well as asymptomatic infected healthcare workers through this serial surveillance work. And the guidelines for those who are deemed positive, you can reference the Ministry of Health guidelines. And for those who have had these symptoms, an RT-PCR work was done, and also to trace whether they had any close contact within the hospital and work environment. So we captured the entire um, you know, contact history of the healthcare workers and also look at the uh, work environment. Now, this is a result of our healthcare worker that we did uh, this year from this sample of 551. And I'd just like to highlight a few things here. This is the serology result. The first pre-vac one is when before the vaccine first dose is given. Even here, you can see some of our healthcare workers, uh, this is one year after the initial work uh, where there was no zero conversion. You can see now after a year, uh, there were some of our healthcare workers within our sample who demonstrated a positive antibody level. This is before the vaccine. And then after the vaccine was given, you can see the antibody titer level increase. And two weeks after completion of the two doses, you can see the antibody titer level against the NTS1 RPD, IgG level at the highest level with the kick and test. So two weeks after completion of the vaccine uh, dose, this is three weeks for the Pfizer, you can see antibody titer levels are at maximum. Uh, but over the duration of time for our sample 551 healthcare workers, you could see the mean value starts to wane. Now, this is about three months, the blue dotted lines, uh, you can see the uh, spread of it, but the mean teacher has started to drop. And also for uh, six months uh, follow-up, you can see where they have come, almost to where they started uh, the vaccination. So for uh, this healthcare worker cohort, we can demonstrate that antibody teacher does in fact wane over this duration of three to six months. So this is real data that's come from our work, uh, both at the Institute for Clinical Research and the Institute for Medical Research, and two hospitals, Hospital Queen Elizabeth and Hospital Kuala Lumpur. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there were some healthcare workers who are already positive uh, at the point of before vaccination. So we looked at this cohort and compared to those who did not have uh, any vaccine uh, or infection uh, before this. And you can see for those who had prior infection, uh, when they were given the first dose and then the second dose, they had a more robust antibody response. And you can see the, the, the orangish reddish line here showing the uh, level being constantly higher uh, for those who had prior infection. So someone who has had past infection and then given a vaccine, the antibody level in fact uh, goes up uh, very high. And that is consistent up to the maximum level two exposed vaccination. And then subsequently too, uh, just like what you saw earlier, uh, the mean teacher started to deteriorate overall. 
Likewise, for those who had prior infection too, although they're much higher antibody level, they too demonstrated a waning effect. So it is not only for those who did not have any infection and given vaccines, demonstrating waning effect, even those who have had infection and given vaccine also demonstrated a waning effect. What is more uh, clearer now is that the younger population tend to have a better or more robust antibody response as compared to the older or the elderly population. Of course, healthcare workers who are tested were all less than um, the retirement age in some sort of six years of age. So we didn't have above 64. And among those who have been vaccinated, uh, again, to demonstrate uh, the antibody teacher level, for those who did not have any breakthrough infection, you can see overall three months and six months, the antibody level deteriorate or wane. For those who did develop um, um, infection, for those who are asymptomatic, that means they did not dis display any symptoms, the mean teacher again at six months, if you compare three months to six months, shows that a, a reduction of waning effect. And until they have a symptomatic infection, only then you start to see the antibody becoming much higher. For someone, therefore, without any symptoms, it doesn't automatically translate to increase in antibody level uh, if one is vaccinated and get infected. Meaning to say that uh, someone has a symptomatic infection, they tend to display a higher antibody uh, response after being vaccinated. Again, you see a difference among how the body responds to uh, vaccination and uh, infection. So in summary, what we have demonstrated from our own, our own study is that Antibody level tends to peak about two weeks and starts to wane between three to six months. And during this time, we have seen breakthrough infections. So the rate is about 10%, 8% to 10% overall. And it in fact coincided with the wider community spread. And for those individuals with asymptomatic infection, uh, we don't seem to see a high antibody response. For those with mild symptoms, they tend to have a higher antibody response. And this is no different than many other studies. So this is coming out of the UK work and Wales, where they look at those given uh, vaccines, uh, Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine. Again, the trend, and this is another cohort of six and over uh, people, including those with uh, categorized as clinical vulnerable and those with extreme vulnerability, meaning the elderly population, look at the mean age of 63. Again, in this group too, uh, the teacher level tend to wane over the duration and more than 70 days, you can see now the level in fact is actually at a low level, especially for those who are clinically vulnerable, this becomes a problem. And this is another study that uh, we undertook here, the real world uh, vaccine effectiveness study, quite popularly known as RECOVAM now. Uh, again, in our study, despite the fact the initial rollout of the vaccine in the PIC program showed that the vaccines were effective in maintaining high uh, you know, reduction for ICU and death and reduction in infection. But again, over the duration of three to five months, we've demonstrated again that vaccine effectiveness against infection has started to wane because Pfizer from 88% to 68%, and for Sinovac uh, from about 76% to 27%. So this waning effect overall for the population, despite the fact that it's helped to contain the transmission as well as the infection, as well as the hospitalization, it is still a problem to reckon with. And this is not unique to Malaysia. If you look at studies that come out of Qatar, US and UK, almost all of the studies demonstrated the same thing, that for the Pfizer vaccine, it has in fact waned between 78% as high as at the start of the, the rollout, about 20% after four months. Uh, some have demonstrated as low as 47% after five months. So 
the individual variation, but the trend are almost similar. The waning effect is across the board for all portfolios of vaccines. Now, if you look at some of the outcomes of those who have had infection and then subsequently, as I demonstrated earlier, being vaccinated otherwise, just again, this uh, condition considered that, uh, you know, being uh, infected doesn't offer you long-term longevity of the protection uh, correlates as well. If you compare those who are vaccinated and those who are fully vaccinated for breakthrough infection, it is much, much higher among those who are unvaccinated and that recover from infection. In fact, it's 2.3, four times. So the odds of you having a breakthrough infection for those who are unvaccinated is in fact higher compared to those who have been fully vaccinated. So again, it shows that uh, uh, being unvaccinated increases your risk of breakthrough infection, even though you're recovered from a prior infection. And some of the data that has come out of the use of the dose, the third dose. So the third dose is given to those who cannot induce sufficient immunity level. And this has come from groups who are immunocompromised, those who are given chemotherapy and those who have had cancer you know, therapy and they have radiation exposure or transplant patient given immunosuppressive drugs. They can't um, you know, create sufficient antibody levels as compared to someone given two doses and deemed to be healthy. So one of the first work that came out for the third dose for this group showed that in fact, you can increase those who can zero convert with the use of the vaccine and also the antibody level between the first dose and the third dose, you can see how a month later, most in this cancer cohort, the organ transplant patients, uh, there's an increase in the teacher level. So it shows that the use of the third dose is a positive turnover in terms of increasing your antibody teacher level. And so another work that came out from our neighbor, Thailand, when they looked at many different portfolios and to combine with other vaccines to see uh, whether they induce higher uh, immune levels. So these are uh, some of those data that you can reference on the sequest study. So someone given CoronaVac, which is Sinovac, if you add on a, a vaccine, which is a Sinopharm, or AstraZeneca or uh, Astra, I mean, a Pfizer vaccine, you can see that the antibody level almost always increased after two weeks uh, when given a booster dose. And if you compare that with someone who's given uh, a, a, a Pfizer, Pfizer combination, uh, some of these vaccine boosters are comparable. For example, CoronaVac given the AstraZeneca uh, booster dose you can see that the teacher levels are comparable to someone given two doses of uh, Pfizer vaccine. And even between the Pfizer vaccine given to CoronaVac recipients, a half dose is comparable to a full dose. So some of these early data are very uh, good in the way that uh, the discussion about bringing a booster dose uh, was uh, uh, brought into the expert panels. And uh, this is one of the reasons why uh, a heterologous booster was uh, considered uh, effective in increasing antibody levels. And if you look at how the body responds to infection and vaccination, this is a very recent publication in the Journal of Science where the behavior of the body is very much now related to, uh, at least in this paper uh, coming out of the UK, tied to the idea that it's how the first contact with the individual will determine the future response to the body and uh, the need of booster. And again, in this study, looking at a cohort of uh, healthcare workers, they demonstrated that um, for someone who has a prior infection, the first contact with the vaccine gives a robust uh, response, 
But again, over the duration of time and the introduction of various of concern, there's already a reason to be concerned because uh, the, the antibody level has started to plateau or decrease uh, despite the fact two doses are given and therefore the need for booster is considered sometimes after five months. And, and in another study that many of these portfolios is mixed and given uh, to people who've been fully vaccinated. Uh, this is a boost study ongoing in the UK where they looked at uh, several different portfolios given to uh, either a Pfizer recipient or AstraZeneca recipient. Almost all the vaccines showed increase in uh, immunity level uh, except for one of the inactivated, wholly inactivated vaccines uh, for the uh, Pfizer vaccine. It wasn't seen to increase the immunity level. But nevertheless, in this cross-boost study, all vaccines were seen to be safe. There were no red flags for the trial participants. And this was one of the reasons why the UK used this data to roll out a heterologous booster campaign uh, in their use of uh, AstraZeneca or Pfizer for the population. And what is more interesting is that almost all of this combination showed that the side effects were very much more comparable to the second dose of the primary series, no worse than that. And that many of these were very much related to the infection injection site and all general fatigue and soreness and some nausea. Now this is coming out for real world data uh, that was published by the Ministry of Health Chile. It shows that for Sinovac recipients or Coronavac recipients, and uh, when the, they, they offered the use of the Citrolocus uh, model of boosters, so someone given a complete series of Sinovac, given a Pfizer or AstraZeneca or homologous Sinovac, you can see that the vaccine effectiveness after two weeks of the booster dose increased uh, the, um, the effectiveness. And, but this is not across the board similar. You can see that the Pfizer vaccine induced about 20% more compared to uh, homologous Sinovac. And uh, for AstraZeneca, it was slightly less, about 20%. So you can't compare the booster uh, as if it's similar. And one of the reasons for recommending a heterologous booster for Sinovac is based on such outcomes. So you can see the difference between a homologous Sinovac versus a heterologous heterologous Sinovac, there are vast difference in the vaccine effectiveness. And also the same for hospitalization, but for death, if it's comparable, the difference again uh, for booster doses, almost all booster doses, uh, they seem to have very similar effect on the outcome for mortality. And therefore, if you look at the most recent recommendation for um, the booster dose, the US now, although initially recommended the use of booster doses for elderly population, those with comorbidities, even as young as 16 and above, or those living long-term facilities, it is recognized now that uh, the use of a single uh, booster dose for all individuals 18 years and above is now uh, an eligible condition in the US. And this is approved vaccine by the FDA. And so this is based again on the recommendation of the advisory panel. Something similar is also offered in our country. And again, in the UK, previously they had prioritized the elderly population and those with comorbidities and is above age 40. And now you can see that the, uh, the vaccine committee has recommended that adults 18 years and above are eligible for boosters. Why is this so? All is because it's based on two premises. One is that all vaccines have demonstrated efficacy in the rollout, yes, but also they are now demonstrable 
waning effect. And we know that we can boost the immune level with booster doses, either as a third dose for some who are priority in the cancer group or immune suppressed group, or those who are healthy but at risk of COVID, nevertheless, you can still offer a booster. And these are the conditions why a booster dose is offered. And again, there are certain schedules that we can follow. And so in Malaysia now, uh, we have recommended across the board to offer frontline healthcare workers, initially healthy, uh, healthy workers too. Uh, now elderly population 60 and above were initially uh, considered, long-term care facilities were considered. We have now brought the age category to eligibility above 18 years of birth, and especially with underlying medical conditions to be prioritized. Then we added on the recommended population, pregnant mothers, uh, essential frontline workers, especially in the economic sector, and those who have travel restriction to be offered the same. And now all adults 18 years and above are prioritized to receive a booster based on age de-escalation still. And this is a regime of the offer of a booster dose. So for a Pfizer recipient, six months after the second dose, they can be given a Pfizer as a booster. And if they are contraindicated, they can be offered an AstraZeneca as a booster uh, for them at the six months. But AstraZeneca, the Pfizer dose is offered as a heterologous booster. And homologous, they can receive a third dose or a booster dose, AstraZeneca. For Sinovac, we prioritize the use of a Pfizer at three months after the second dose based on our data. And also, they can receive a homologous Sinovac if they are contraindicated for the Pfizer or alternatively, they're given AstraZeneca. For Sinopharm, again, three months after the second dose, Pfizer. Uh, Sinopharm has yet to be given uh, authorization in our country, so they can be offered AstraZeneca as an alternative. For Moderna, we have yet to roll it up, but they'll be offered a Pfizer or a half-dose Moderna or AstraZeneca. Can Sinobiologic, which is a single dose, six months later to be offered a Pfizer uh, or, a, or AstraZeneca? Can Sino yet to be given regulatory approval, so we have to wait for it. Likewise, for Johnson Johnson, regulatory approval is still pending. And so we have to wait for that. In the meantime, they can offer two months later with a Pfizer and or AstraZeneca. We offered initially 50 as a number for AstraZeneca, but based on most recent data on the safety aspect of AstraZeneca, 18 years and above, they can be given as the boosted dose, uh, subject to risk-harm benefit being articulated to them. And for those who are recommended the third dose, this is the 28 days and above, especially for the priority groups, the cancer patients, those who have chemotherapy, those who are immune compromised. The Pfizer vaccine is given at least four weeks after the second dose, especially those with moderately to severe immune compromised individuals. AstraZeneca is eight weeks after the second dose uh, for the same group or uh, alternative to the Pfizer. Sinovac, at least four weeks after the second dose. But now there's consideration that for all Sinovac recipients, all adults, 90 days after the second dose, we should consider the third dose. And we are hoping that this can become a norm so that everyone who's given a Sinovac will in fact get a third dose to be considered as part of the extended primary series and uh, to, to complete the vaccination. So with that, I'd like to thank you why uh, you know, we're given a certain time for booster doses and the basis why we need to consider the use of booster doses. Uh, especially for our country as well. Thank you very much. I will now invite uh, Dr. Muniswaran uh, to continue the webinar. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Kalei, for setting out the scene and for giving us an overview about boosters and third dose. So ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to straight move on to a controversial but an important topic, pregnancy and vaccination 
and I'm going to justify to you all about boosters in pregnancy. I would like to declare I've got no conflict of interest in this topic. I've not been sponsored by Pfizer or AstraZeneca. So ladies and gentlemen, in the next 25 minutes, I'm going to talk about three things. COVID-19 and the pregnant mother, why we should vaccinate, is it safe? We have got data to say it is safe. I'm going to show you all and justify why we need to boost pregnant mothers. Ladies and gentlemen, let's first take a look COVID-19 and pregnancy. Now, what has history taught us about infections in pregnancy? Let's go back 10 years in time. And what have we learned from the influenza pandemic? The amount of mothers who died from H1N1 was highest way back in 2011. The amount of mothers who were actually unwell in the second and third trimester was significantly high. And we realized two things. The pregnant mothers are more vulnerable to infection, especially respiratory infections. It was more common in the second and third trimester. And we also highlighted the importance of vaccinating these mothers. It was already known, even before COVID, the fact that if a pregnant mother gets infected, she does not do well. And similarly, we thought those would be the same facts with regards to COVID-19. However, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to show you all this data about implications of COVID-19. Now, in US, 148,000 women screened positive. Their death rates were low and their mortality was 0.016%. Now, the UK had one of the lowest maternal deaths in Europe. They only screened symptomatic mothers and the death rate was 0.4%. But in Malaysia, we had 10 times less positive mothers. 184 mothers died as of 31st November. The percentage of mothers dying from COVID-19 is 1.27%, which is far higher than the general population. So ladies and gentlemen, a pregnant mother is vulnerable. If she's pregnant, her risk of dying from COVID-19 is far higher as compared to someone else who's not pregnant. So I believe the early years, we were falsely reassured that pregnant mothers were not infected. The early studies showed that most mothers were asymptomatic, that most mothers had mild disease. But however, ladies and gentlemen, it only took us a few more months. And in May 2020, the truth was revealed. That implications of COVID-19 among pregnant mothers was far higher. I would like to bring your attention to this wonderful paper in BMJ, which is a living systematic review. And this paper was one of the largest study up to date, looking into the implications of COVID-19 among mothers in the reproductive age group among pregnant mothers. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, based on this systematic review, we realize that if a mother is pregnant and she gets COVID-19, mortality is increased. ICU admissions are increased. Stillbirths are increased, neonatal deaths are increased, neonatal admissions are increased, fetal heart rate abnormalities are increased. So the earlier studies from Wuhan showed they were unaffected. Later, large systematic studies showed that pregnant mothers and their babies were vulnerable. 
Now, if you think there was only two for the BMJ paper, I would like to bring your attention to another European journal, also a systematic review and meta-analysis. Now, this study showed similar outcomes from the BMJ paper. The mother gets COVID-19, the need for oxygen support is increased. The need for mechanical ventilation is increased. Yetrogenic caesarean section to aid respiration is increased. Fetal heart rate abnormalities and preterm deliveries are increased. Now, what if the mother is pregnant as compared to the mother is non-pregnant? Is there any difference? Yes, ladies and gentlemen. Now, this wonderful paper compared mothers who were symptomatic who were pregnant as compared to mothers who were non-pregnant. And the evidence is clear. Pregnant mothers itself were highest risk. The risk of ICU admissions, ventilation, death, and the need for ECMO was increased purely because one was pregnant. And you can correlate this to the physiological adaptations of a pregnant mother. So which was greater, the first wave or the second wave? Now, what is the difference between the first wave and the second wave? I believe it is the variant. In Malaysia, during our first wave, we had zero maternal deaths in Malaysia. But in the second wave, we had a significant number of mothers who died. So I'd like to bring your attention to the ICNAF report, which looked into the number of mothers who were admitted to ICU across England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And they realized that the second wave, the Delta variant, had far greater implications. And the summarize was up to one in 10 mothers would be admitted to the ICU. But if we had a Delta wave, it is one in seven mothers. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, the amount of mothers requiring ICU admissions can be as high as one in seven, which is truly significant. I would also like to bring your attention to another registry specific to be for mothers in pregnancy. It is known as the PREF-COF registry. Now, this is the largest registry created by the University of Birmingham, which still continues to collect data around the globe about pregnant mothers with COVID-19. And they showed that the incidence of preterm birth once again is increased. The incidence of stillbirth is increased. Now, why is the preterm birth increased? Because sometimes if the mother is in ICU requiring ventilation and has got refractory hypoxemia, the recommendation is to deliver to aid ventilation and hence iatrogenic preterm delivery is increased. Now, ladies and gentlemen, another controversial part. Everyone asks us, what is the risk of fetal infection if the mother gets COVID-19 near term? Now, the evidence shows that the risk of fetal transmission is actually zero via vertical route, but a perinatal positivity can be as one to two percent. So the risk of vertical transmission is none, but the risk of transmission is more towards respiratory droplets and direct contact. So the current evidence shows if the mother is positive, there's a one to 2% chance that the baby may also be positive. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, various other publications, a cohort study in California, a cohort study in US academic centers, the inter-COVID multinational cohort study across major hospitals in US, all mimic similar outcomes from the BMJ paper 
And even the last paper, which was published last year from the CDC, also showed that pregnant mothers were vulnerable. There was significant increase in implications to the mother's health and the baby's health. Let's take a look at the Malaysian COVID data. Now, based on the Malaysian CEMD data, 44% of mothers who died in Malaysia died due to COVID-19, and the incidence was 184. 60% of them actually occurred in the third trimester, and there were two times more mothers who died in 2021 from COVID-19 than the average number of mothers who died in Malaysia due to other causes. So yes, the implications are significant. If you take a look at the timing of maternal deaths in Malaysia, 60% were in the third trimester, but one third were in the second trimester. One, again, it ties with the physiological adaptations of pregnancy. So hence, ladies and gentlemen, if a pregnant mother gets COVID-19, the risk of death is one in three in the second trimester, but most severe in the third trimester. And among all the mothers who died, 66% of them required delivery to aid ventilation. Hence, the incidence of caesarean section and preterm delivery is significant. We often talk about risk factors. So yes, 78% of them had risk factors. One risk factor, which was prevalent across all age groups, was obesity. But I'd like to highlight one fact, ladies and gentlemen. If you think COVID only affects male, it is not true. If you think COVID only affects the elderly, it is not true. Just like why Dr. Kale had showed us that we need to boost people who are above 18 years of age. Based on the Malaysian CEMD data, 60% of mothers who died were young, were below the age of 35. So pregnancy was a risk. Age has got poor correlation with death. So with that, we can summarize that pregnant mothers are vulnerable especially in the second and third trimester. And this is across the board for all infections, including COVID-19. In the Delta strain, one in seven mothers need ICU admissions. And the risk of death is increased threefold if you're pregnant. The risk of ventilation is increased. The risk of mortality is increased. The risk of fetal transmission is one to 2% but the risk of preterm delivery, stillbirth, neonatal deaths, and caesarean section are all increased. The pregnant mother incidentally gets a COVID-19 infection. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I think we can appreciate that we need to protect this vulnerable group. We need to appreciate that they are vulnerable. We need to move forward and discuss about vaccination in pregnancy. So here's the Malaysian experience. We first started vaccinating pregnant mothers as early as February that we focus on the frontliners. And then between April to August, we recommended the vaccination for all high-risk mothers. But quickly, as early as August, we realized that it is not just mothers with risk factors, but it is all pregnant mothers. And hence, we rolled out the vaccination program for all pregnant mothers in Malaysia. And as early as October 13th, we are now recommending boosters for pregnant mothers because two doses alone is inadequate, just like what was highlighted by Dr. Kali. But let's take a look at the VSAFE registry, ladies and gentlemen. And this is one of the largest registry in the world. And based on the VSAFE registry as of last week, 
there were already 177,000 mothers who have been vaccinated in the US and 6,685 are eligible and are incorporated in the study. Now, I'd like to share that I'm proud to see that Malaysia is almost similar to US. We have almost vaccinated 176,000 mothers and our uptake among pregnant mothers was highest 90%. Although it took a celebrity to drive the message across, I must say that as a nation, we have prioritized pregnant mothers, we have identified them and our success rate of vaccinating pregnant mothers are far better than most other countries. Now in UK and in US, the total coverage among pregnant mothers was only 30%. But I must say the total coverage among pregnant mothers in Malaysia are highest 90%. I hope we can achieve a similar percentage for boosters, but that is something that we we'll have to wait and watch. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we know that pregnant mothers are vulnerable. We know that they need to be vaccinated, but how effective is it in pregnancy? So I would like to bring your attention to this paper, which looked into the effectiveness of the mRNA vaccine among pregnant mothers. It was a wonderful study by Dagger et al. And just like non-pregnant mothers, the incidence of breakthrough infections was far lower among those who have been vaccinated as compared to those who were unvaccinated. Hence, the vaccine was effective even among pregnant mothers. Similarly, another JAMA paper by Goldstein also looked into the incidence of breakthrough infections among mothers who were vaccinated. And yes, it was effective. The incidence was far lower in those who were vaccinated as compared to the unvaccinated group. So yes, the vaccine was effective, is effective, has effective, even among pregnant mothers. And the RCOG, the Royal College in United Kingdom came out with a very strong statement. Back in September, they realized that no pregnant mothers who had completed the vaccine were actually admitted to the hospital and there were zero deaths in the vaccination group. I'd like to share the Malaysian experience. Among the 184 mothers who died, 79% of them were unvaccinated. And there were only 2% of deaths in the completed vaccination group. And among the 2%, majority of them had Sinovac. So ladies and gentlemen, it's clear that the vaccine reduces deaths. It may not be 100% foolproof but the efficacy and the protection from certain types of vaccines is beneficial. And we can further discuss the need for booster. So with that, let's ask the million dollar question. Are vaccines safe in pregnancy? So perhaps back in February, we were unsure. Back in June, we had a little bit of data, but fast forward November, ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna discuss various studies to show that vaccines are safe. So it's back in June, based on the New England Journal that we first came out with preliminary findings. And it was clear back in June itself that the vaccines had no safety concerns among pregnant mothers. The V-safe registry patients were followed up 
and it was in October that this paper was published. They looked into the association among those who were vaccinated as compared to the risk of miscarriage. Now, the million-dollar question was, can you vaccinate a pregnant mother in the first trimester where organogenesis happens? Now, based on this paper, there is no association between vaccination and miscarriage, even if you were to vaccinate them in the first trimester, as the incidence of miscarriage was similar to the general population across the board for every single gestation. Similarly, one-third of the mothers in the UK were vaccinated in the first trimester. Although majority were vaccinated in the second trimester, the 1,428 mothers were vaccinated in the first trimester did not show an increase in the incidence of miscarriage as compared to the background. Now, for the non-obstetricians in the crowd, the incidence of miscarriage is 15%. It is normal that one in six women may miscarry purely due to a fetal cause. But if you vaccinate mother, the 15% does not increase. It is the same as compared to the general population. Now, they compared the V-safe registry to two other large miscarriage cohorts, and it was clear that the vaccine did not cause miscarriage. Now, question number two, does the vaccine cause preterm deliveries? The answer is no. Does the vaccine cause small for gestational age? No. Does the vaccine cause infant death? No. Does the vaccine cause increase in NICU admissions? No. The risk among those who were vaccinated among 1,634 women were the same as compared to the background. So now we know that the vaccine did not cause miscarriage, but does the vaccine cause stillbirth? So the UK, the US study actually followed up mothers between December to July 2021, and they followed up 11,000 women, and they compared the incidence of stillbirth among those who were vaccinated as compared to those who were not vaccinated. And in the vaccinated arm, they actually had lower incidence of stillbirths among those who were vaccinated as compared to those who were not vaccinated. And in fact, there were only 26 babies who were born stillbirth in the vaccinated group. Now, who are these 26 babies? It was actually not related to the vaccine. One had a tight neutral cord, one had a true knot, one had an abruption, one the mother had a medical condition, one had congenital CMV, and one had multiple gestation. So ladies and gentlemen, the vaccine does not cause miscarriage. The vaccine does not cause stillbirths. The cause for the stillbirth were associated with other causes, and the incidence was same, in fact, lower as compared to the background population. Now, how about mothers who were vaccinated in the second and third trimester? So among all the babies who were vaccinated in the second and third trimester, a cohort of 1,574, there were only 45 infants with birth defects. And the incidence was the same once again with the general population. So it was clear, vaccinating mothers in the first trimester did not cause fetal anomalies. Vaccinating mothers in the second and third trimester was also safe. So similarly, a recent paper in BJOC 
looked into vaccinating mothers in the third trimester and they showed no adverse fetal outcomes, no increase in NICU admissions and vaccinating mothers even in the third trimester was safe to the baby. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, although the largest series of publications was associated with the mRNA vaccine, this paper was just published a few days ago, looking into the safety of extra zanica. And based on this paper, it is also safe to be used in pregnancy. Although the numbers were small, there were no increased risk of miscarriage, there were no increased risk of preterm births, there were no increased risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. So can you give AstraZeneca in pregnancy? Well, the risk of VIIT is actually highest in the first dose, not the second dose, nor the third dose. And so based on this small study, AstraZeneca is also safe to be used in pregnancy, although the largest data is related to the mRNA vaccine. So what about fetal benefits of vaccination? We often talk about harm, we know it is not harmful, but is it beneficial? So ladies and gentlemen, one of the earlier papers was the ACOG paper, which looked into the amount of antibodies transmitted in the breast milk. And they realized if you vaccinate mothers in the third trimester, the amount of antibodies in the breast milk was far higher in the vaccinated group as compared to those who actually had a natural infection. Similarly, they looked into antibodies in the breast milk, although they only evaluated a small group of people. They realized that the antibody levels and titers were high, up to 40 days in the mother's breast milk after delivery. And hypothesized, perhaps there was a little bit of benefit to the fetus. And a recent paper in JAMA compared two things. The amount of antibodies in the serum the amount of antibodies in breast milk and the levels were almost similar. So if you vaccinate a mother, especially near towards term, the amount of antibodies which were found in the cord blood in the breast milk was significantly high and perhaps hypothesized the potential benefits of neonates. Although it is not proven, it remains a hypothesis. So that brings down to the million dollar question. Should we give booster or should we not give booster in pregnancy? So ladies and gentlemen, this paper was just published on the 2nd of November and it looked into the number that needs to be treated for pregnant mothers. If someone is not pregnant, if someone is healthy, you need to vaccinate a huge amount of people to prevent one death. But if you vaccinate pregnant mothers, you can prevent symptomatic infections in one in 206 mothers. You can prevent severe infections in one in 400 to one in 2,000 mothers. You can prevent preterm deliveries with a number of one to 200. You can prevent cesarean infections. Hence, ladies and gentlemen, the number needed to treat is far lower and cost effective for pregnant mothers as compared to non-pregnant mothers. And that talks to another topic about vaccine equity. It all depends on where a mother lives. And we talk about global reduction of maternal deaths. The amount of mothers who died in Mexico is far higher than the amount of mothers who died in the US. And you talk about prevention of maternal deaths, a simple intervention called vaccination 
will significantly reduce maternal deaths. If we vaccinated every single mother in Malaysia, we would have prevented 44% of maternal deaths in Malaysia. We would have saved 184 lives of mothers and babies. I would like to bring your attention to this recent paper, which looked into the impact of booster among pregnant mothers. And they evaluated three types of mothers. Mothers were pregnant, mothers were lactating, and mothers were non-pregnant. They looked into the effects of post-prime and post-boost, and they realized that mothers were given a post-boost had higher antibodies, had higher titers in the breast milk, had higher titers in the umbilical cord, and perhaps hypothesized that this might be beneficial to the fetus. So ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of physiological adaptations in pregnancy. The increase in plasma volume, the change in immunity, the increase in renal excretion. So perhaps pregnant mothers are immunocompromised. Pregnant mothers are vulnerable. The benefits of booster, perhaps the fetal benefits outweighs the theoretical risk. So with that, we came out with a guideline. The guideline in 13th of October recommends booster for all pregnant mothers. Just like what was presented by Dr. Talley, if you had Sinovac and Sinovac, based on the largest safety profile, the recommended booster is Pfizer. So it's three months after Sinovac, or it is six months after Pfizer or after AstraZeneca. Boosters are safe. It does not cause fetal harm. It is far more beneficial to boost than not to boost. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are not the only society or nation who recommend booster. The ACOG recommends, the Australian government recommends. Malaysia came out very quickly with one of the earlier nations to recommend boosters for pregnant mothers. And now the CDC also recommends booster for pregnant mothers. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize that we should actually fear COVID-19 should not fear vaccine, which saves lives and reduces death. There's no evidence about safety of boosters or safety of vaccines among pregnant mothers. It is purely because pregnant mothers were neglected. They were not incorporated in the initial studies. But no evidence does not mean it is unsafe. I think we should appreciate the physiological adaptations of pregnancy. The respiratory changes, the immunological changes, the cardiorespiratory changes makes a pregnant mother more vulnerable. The efficacy of the booster may reduce. Pregnant mothers perhaps may benefit from a boost. I think it's all about the science of culpability. It is not always the risk. It is the balance between the benefit and the risk. And ladies and gentlemen, the mRNA vaccines are safe. It does not cause stillbirth. It does not cause miscarriage. It does not cause preterm deliveries. It does not cause fetal abnormalities. I think as physicians, we should be holistic, not just the fetus, but we should think about saving lives. A healthy mother equates to a healthy pregnancy. So with that, I would like to end with a quote. The famous prof. Mohammad Fatala said, the women don't die because of illnesses that we cannot treat. They die because society still hasn't decided that their lives are worth saving. With that, I would like to strongly suggest 
that we should recommend vaccination among pregnant mothers. And I believe this vulnerable group will benefit from the booster. So with that, thank you so much for your kind attention. I'll be more than happy to take any questions if there is. And thank you for your kind attention and for listening to this talk. Okay, uh, thank you so much for that very wonderful uh, talk, uh, Dr. Muniswaran. As usual, it is ex extremely you know, exciting to see you bring the evidence and the references that uh, physicians and practitioners can refer in the narrative about the points you're making. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that uh, today we address the anxiety around the booster doses for pregnant mothers and the data that you shared with us today so clearly points to the benefit uh, in, in particular, it's not a single life you're looking at, two lives uh, for uh, the benefit of the booster uh, program. And in, in this you know, afternoon, there are many of them out there who still may have one or two questions related to this. So please take the opportunity to ask Dr. Muniswaran any specific maternal or fetal related questions. In the meantime, let us uh, address some of those questions that are there. So, what we will do, Dr. Muniz, is just run through the questions and see how we can um, go through. So we start with the first one. I think this is for you to take, Dr. Muniz, first question. Sure, Dr. Khaled. Adakah dos ketiga mempunyai kesan buruk pada perdinima pada jangka masa yang panjang? I think, Dr. Khaled, uh, you wonderfully addressed this concern. Okay, so this one basically, um, secara amnya, semua vaksin yang digunakan secara booster telah pun dikaji selidik. Oleh itu, dari segi jangka masa panjang, masih dipantau sekiranya ada perkara-perkara yang tidak ditemu semasa kajian. Dan setakat ini, kita masih belum ada apa dikatakan sebagai red flag lah dari segi pemberian booster. Oleh itu, kita buat masa ini tidak ada perkara yang lebih daripada apa yang kita pun telah tahu. Lah. Most of the vaccine have local side effects and some systemic effects, and we continue to monitor. We have one study now under NPRA and the Institute to monitor this called SAFE-COVAX, and so far we are monitoring this. Um, next question. Is there any long-term side effect from mixing? So I think this one I shared earlier, uh, the SAFE-COVAX study, I mean, sorry, the COVAX study from the UK, the uh, secret study from uh, Thailand, and also the real-world data from Chile, and all of them showed the uh, mixing of uh, vaccine, the heterologous mixing, in fact, brings about better uh, vaccine effectiveness. We do not hear from any of these uh, studies that uh, there has been uh, long-term side effects. And uh, I think we need to look into the vaccine effectiveness, especially for reduction hospitalization and death and reduction infection. And uh, as I've narrated previously, all of those side effects data come from trials of thousands of population and also from the real world use of such vaccines. And so we know even from our own country, uh, the uh, AIFI monitoring by NPRA, there hasn't been any red flags uh, specifically for any of the vaccines. Uh, next question, please. So are there any specific uh, comorbidities, I think, or pregnancy? I think Dr. Munisura, you addressed this. Let me come to the second part. Sorry, so uh, about pregnancies. So we realized that although 78% of the patients had comorbidities, the most significant comorbidity being obesity. We also realized that a significant amount of healthy mothers actually died in pregnancy. So pregnancy per self 
is a risk factor. But I think about titles and weaning off, I think Dr. Kale, you'll be the best person to address this. Yeah, so in terms of the uh, lowering of antibody titers, so we recognize certain populations. We know that those who are given the third dose is in fact for this particular group, those who are immune suppressed or immune compromised, those who have cancer therapy or trans organ transplant. And so if we know in this particular group, these are those uh, you know, specific groups where we are uh, expected to have a lower antibody level. And this is why the third dose is given uh, on, uh, on about 28 days onwards. Beyond that, you know, we know that it is COVID-related comorbidities are more important as to why one has to be given the vaccine because we know almost 70% of deaths are related to comorbidities. So anyone with comorbidities, certainly you want to, uh, you know, get your vaccine booster um, taken. Next slide. Next question. That is for you, Dr. Muniz. Yes. So I had a patient who was 27 weeks pregnant, had first dose of Pfizer, then had ATT less than two weeks after Pfizer. She developed miscarriage. So ladies and gentlemen, we are quite certain based on the evidence that the vaccination is not associated with miscarriage. Neither was it perhaps related to the Pfizer, neither was it related to the ATT vaccination. So I think it's good to reassess. The most common cause of preterm delivery is actually an infection. So does she have some other underlying cause? It is easiest to blame the vaccine, but some things are coincidental. It is rarely an association. And talking about boosters in pregnant mothers, I believe we should appreciate a few physiological changes in a pregnant mother. The amount of EGFR is increased. The amount of plasma volume in a pregnant mother is increased. So if you expect a pregnant mother to react to a vaccine just like a non-pregnant mother, I believe there are two different cohorts. I believe pregnant mothers were never included in the earlier trials, only later on they're slowly being included. So I think it is a space that we have to wait and watch. But the recent paper that I shared looking into the antibody titers following a post-boost is extremely interesting and perhaps we should wait and watch. I believe it may be more beneficial to boost a pregnant mother, perhaps with neonatal benefits. I'd also like to take this question, Dr. Kale. How do you counsel a pregnant mother post-Sinovac? So the mother actually has got three options. She can take a third dose of Sinovac just because she took two doses of Sinovac. But the efficacy of a third dose is only 74%. You can counsel her for Pfizer. It has got the best safety profile. And she's got two Sinovacs. The third Pfizer, the efficacy goes oh. up from 74 to 95%. So please give her the benefit and risk. Please counsel her. It is okay to mix vaccines. Pfizer has got a best safety profile in public, in pregnancy. So this question I will take, Dr. Manis, berapa peratus anggaran dos yang ada pada vaksin booster berbanding vaksin dos satu dan dua? So this essentially it's uh, uh, on the basis that uh, if everyone gets a homologous vaccine booster, then the proportion will remain the same. But of course, for the booster uh, program, uh, we have allowed a heterologous booster. So this uh, proportion will change. So anggaran akan berbeza. Uh, berdasarkan kepada penerimaan uh, jenis uh, 
vaksin booster. Uh, contohnya, sesiapa yang telah pun diberi dos lengkap Sinovac, sekiranya mereka menerima uh, dos Pfizer, peratusnya akan mula berubah dan kita pun dah mengesyorkan supaya diberi uh, contohnya vaksin Pfizer. So, uh, not the same as in the primary series. Nah. So, kita tunggu uh, sehingga data itu lebih lengkap. Adakah dos booster melemahkan daya tahan badan? badan? Tidak. Answer is straight no. Uh, walaupun demikian, apabila diberi dos booster, uh, kemungkinan ke, ke berlaku uh, rasa lesu, letih dan juga uh, uh, dan sakit yang seperti sedemikian boleh berlaku. Itu tidak bermakna badan itu menjadi lemah. Uh, adalah perbezaan yang jauh. Eh? Uh, for clinical trial participants in a booster vaccine study, do they require further booster dose? Uh, not particularly. If the booster dose is a, a approved booster dose, then it is considered as part of the series. Of course, this needs to be lined up together with the um, application for mobility and such in the mycetra, which is the trial team will address. Next question. Is there any contraindication, special concern if clients get booster dose slightly earlier than recommended time, let's say a week or 10 days? Actually, they're not contraindicated, but they're not recommended because many of the things we know now in terms of local side effect or systemic changes occurs because of a certain timeline. The data comes from there. So changing this timeline just for a purpose of earlier it is not going to be you know, much in the, in the benefit. And therefore, they need to monitor more for any adverse event. So we don't want to move in that direction. But there are conditions in which someone can get an earlier dose based on their risk analysis. So for example, we inform that those who are immune compromised, they can take 28 days onward. So the timing comes together with the data of the trial and the real world analysis. Next, Patty. This for you, Dr. Muniz. Yes, so can we recommend booster dose in the first trimester? I think in the earlier days, we were concerned about the potential, about the theoretical risk of miscarriage. But based on the New England Journal paper, it is clear that the vaccine does not cause miscarriage. However, it's a combined decision that you and the patient can make. You can advise the patient, you can counsel the patient. The patient prefers to postpone it after the first trimester. It is acceptable. But if the patient thinks it is actually more convenient, it is safer to get the booster, you can give the booster in the first trimester. It does not cause miscarriage. I think, I think this is a follow-up question from your previous comment. Yeah. What do you, I think it's the answer earlier, Dr. Muni? Yes, you're right, Dr. Kali. It is always easy to blame the vaccine. But <laughs> it is good to be holistic and take a look at various other confounding factors. Mm. Okay, next question. Again, for you, Yeah, a 35 week pregnant mother takes a booster. Will this cause a false positive RTK? The answer is no. Uh, the booster does not cause a false positive RTK, neither will it cause a false positive PCR. So, the best time to boost a pregnant mother will be earlier on in the pregnancy, not late in the pregnancy. But you should not fear that it might cause a false positive test. If RTK is positive, you should treat her like a potentially infected person rather than blame it on the booster. Do we have the statistics on how many Sinovac first or second dose Malaysian recipients have taken? So this is just ongoing. We started the booster program from uh, October and uh, this is still ongoing. Um, but of course, 
there are those who are quite uh, fixed on the idea that uh, they will take a booster, which is homologous like Sinovac, 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 and therefore they may forego the offer of the Pfizer vaccine. Although the science and the data shows that the Pfizer vaccine has uh, the best safety data as well as the best efficacy data, and so these statistics will of course change uh, as we roll out this program. So at the moment. I'm afraid I'm unable to give the full statistics on this. You have to watch and wait and see how this rolls out. Next slide. Any association of very high antibody levels with serious side effects and myocarditis? No, I think what you are looking at is the associated risk of myocarditis. As we know, we have seen through some of those papers that the younger population with mRNA vaccine have exhibited a higher risk. But now the data shows across all ages there are increased uh, risk for not only through the COVID infection and disease itself, but also some of the studies that shows uh, across the breath uh, the risk of myocarditis. What is more important is the risk myocarditis or those events related to COVID-19 itself, which is far, far higher than what is associated with the, uh, the vaccine. And so it's not about high antibody levels that is the criteria. It's about whether a person responds in an inflammatory mechanism that is different. Some of this is not fully explained, and there's, I think, recently there was a publication uh, trying to again answer some of the other concerns that were expressed as some observations. So at the moment, uh, no, we can't offer any evidence for this. Yeah, next. I think this is still, the debate is still out there. What is important is uh, we know for the first uh, rollout and all over the world, uh, the booster is uh, brought in on the basis we know now there's a waning effect, although they have been effective in containing infection and reduce the hospitalization and death. But to maintain that at the community level now, and also with the VOCs coming in, booster shots would be the way forward. And as to whether for the future this becomes an annual vaccine, like what happens in influenza or otherwise, we will need more data. And uh, you know, it's not uncommon if, if you see adults who are elderly given annual booster doses for influenza based on the, the variants that appear. And so let's not go too far into the future until we know whether this uh, COVID-19, the SARS-CoV-2 mutation is going to either become more endemic and stabilized. This have to be watched and see. Any additional thing on that, uh, Dr. Bunny? No, Dr. Kali, I think it is a time of uncertainty. Mm. You just have to wait and watch and adapt. But I like the fact that you highlighted that boosters were not something new. We have been giving boosters for various types of vaccines, uh, similarly for COVID as well. Yeah. Okay, good. I think we have uh, answered most of the questions. So thank you very much for all the questions. It's quite interesting to see the, the thought process that uh, you know, we kind of bring together with this webinar. And also to all those, uh, you know, information sharing from your side, uh, Dr. Muniswaran, especially on pregnancy-related outcomes, uh, both for vaccination and for booster. And from my side, the research teams here who shared their data on healthcare worker vaccine uh, waning effect, and also from the real-world analysis showing that uh, waning effect is something that requires uh, a booster. And so uh, with that, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Muniswaran, and also the ICR IT team and the NIH IT team to facilitate this particular webinar. We look forward to more future engagement, but certainly today has been really fruitful. And uh, to all of you out there, have our, uh, you know, this session open. You can submit your questions to the ICR platform and we can try and address it. We will hope to have this posted in, onto our website 
so that uh, you can uh, refer back to this uh, webinar at the time of convenience as well. So thank you all and uh, uh, have a pleasant day ahead. <laughs>